0: talked about how we pray. And if you were with us last week, what we mostly saw is that uh, prayer is not so much uh, about the words, although that is very important. The words are important. Prayer is also about the heart. What one truly desires in prayer. The desires of one's heart. I came across this quote this week and thought it was helpful. Simply to say prayers is not to pray. Otherwise, a team of properly trained parrots would serve as well as men. If I was a great preacher, I would have had some parrots up there here this morning for a visual illustration. But you see, simply to speak and simply to ask, while asking is very important and a huge part of prayer, is not necessarily to pray. That does not mean that you're praying. As we saw in Matthew 6, there's a, some specific aspects of prayer Prayer that are important that make it prayer. So, this morning we will consider that prayer is God's means to transform His people and accomplish His purposes. Let me help you, do, let's define prayer first as we get into this. Because in Psalm 73, you're never going to see the word prayer. And so, some of you will immediately kind of rage against this and say, well, this isn't about prayer. But Maybe our definition of prayer is a little bit limited. You see, what we see in the Bible is that prayer is a dialogue between a person and God. It's not simply when we speak, but it's also when we listen. Particularly in the Psalms, you see this prayer, the notion of prayer, the phenomenon of it very widened. And the the psalmist will oftentimes sit and just wait. They wait to hear from God. They cry. They cry out. Psalm 5.3, which T referenced already this morning. Listen to this verse. O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And what? Watch. I watch. What is this person doing? You hear my voice, but I prepare a sacrifice. In other, in other translations it actually says, I prepare my request, my situation. He prepares it before God. And then he waits. He's waiting to hear back from God. God, what is your response? You see, prayer is not just about us speaking, us asking. But prayer is about communing with God until we also hear from Him. And so, as we begin, we want to ask, how does prayer affect us? It's a means of our transformation. I think every person has a way of kind of... Uh, checking out at times when things get overwhelming, heaviness, confusion of life—they uh, just kind of—they need a break, right? That when I was working at a restaurant, oftentimes, it was amazing to me that people who smoked could just get a five-minute break if they wanted one. It didn't matter how busy it was. If they wanted a smoke break, they could just go get a smoke break. And I often wondered, what about people who don't smoke? Can I just take a break if I want to? I don't know. And so I would often, my Jesus is my smoke break. That was, That's what I would say. And I just, they'd get overwhelmed with how busy it was. It was a chaotic restaurant. And so they would just go take a break to smoke a cigarette. And I would, I would often say, Jesus is my, smoke break I just need to pray for a few minutes when I get overwhelmed and the Lord just gives me rest I think this is what we see in the psalmist this morning that life gets overwhelming the circumstances around him is just it it crushes down on him to where he can't see anymore but what we'll see is that when he enters the sanctuary of God the presence of God when he begins to commune with God things become clear Things become clear. So will you stand with me and we'll read from Psalm 73 as we begin. Beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost sl- stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of Of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They're well nourished. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. They rage against God, against man. Therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches their end truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes oh lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms when my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast toward you nevertheless I am continually with you For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You may be seated. Father, will you speak to us clearly? Help us to see what is possible when we come into your presence. God, when we commune with you. When we begin to see your character, God, may you reveal clearly to our clouded minds who you are and who we are. Help us to see you and to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How does prayer affect us? The first thing we want to see this morning in verses one through sixteen of this psalm is that a lack of prayer leads to sinful attitudes, a distorted view of our circumstances and God's faithfulness. There are some blanks in your notes there. A lack of prayer leads to sinful attitudes, a distorted view of our circumstances and God's faithfulness. What happened to this psalmist? He began to believe what he saw, right? It's easy to do. It's before our eyes all the time. The commercials on TV that make it look like those who are, have the riches and can live the high life, they are the happiest people on earth, right? It's funny, even the smoking commercials, it makes it look like those are the happiest people. But then on the bottom, there's the Surgeon General's warning that you know they will die probably from what they do. And then there's the recent commercial that comes on before the movies where there's the guy in the wheelchair, you know, and he's like black and blue and he says this is what smoking does to you. Isn't it odd the difference between those commercials, those people in the beginning, they're the happiest people on earth, and then in the end he's dying and saying this is what it does to you. But the point is that it is easy to begin to believe what we see. And what we see oftentimes tells us that Those who are rebelling against God, or what we see as what God wants His people to do, that those are the people who are really happy, enjoying life. Notice what this psalmist will say All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is verses 13 through 14 of Psalm 73. You see, he begins to believe what he sees, that the wicked are doing well and it will go well with them. And what happens is his life of faith and devotion begins to seem utterly pointless. Everything that he does as a, a believer in Yahweh, as being devoted to Yahweh, it, it seems like it is utterly Pointless, there's no reason for all of this devotion, this struggle of trying to walk with God. Not only does it become, seem pointless, but he is saying that it is almost oppressive. All the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, this guy begins to feel like that his relationship with God is preventing him from enjoying everything else that these other people are enjoying. How does this happen? It seems that it has happened because he is not communing with God. He is looking around him and believing everything that he sees. I wonder if this has happened to you. That as you look around you, the world is most appealing and godliness doesn't seem like it's really worth it. The sacrifice that you will have to make to walk with God. Saturday nights just won't be so enjoyable because you will have to be up early to be with God's people. Has that happened to you? Does the sacrifice of godliness, of being a child of the Father, of being in relationship to Him, does it seem just worthless? Like it's not quite? Worth the sacrifice, the price you will pay, the things you will miss out on. This guy started to believe this that he, he was not praying, he was not communing with God, with his people, and he developed these sinful attitudes. He had a distorted view of his circumstances and of God's faithfulness, of God, what God would do with the wicked. It looked like, man, these people are going to live on forever just like this. It's always going to be this good. Is this the way it is? Is it always really going to be this good? Are they always going to be living that enjoyable, happy life? Let's see what happens. In verse 16, it says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You see, trying to understand what's going on around us can be very oppressive, very difficult to put together. On our own. It's hard to put things in order and figure out, God, how can things work this way? Have you forgotten about them? Are you ignoring them? Do you even see this? And then he says, Until until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The sanctuary of God, for them, it's the temple. It's where God's people come together to worship. He's not, only, he's not dwelling by himself, he's, he's with other people, but as we develop this definition of prayer that's not just us talking, but it's communing with God. You see, even this morning, you are a hope in a sense of prayer, of communing with God as you sing to him, as you hear his words proclaimed. And I wonder if even you this morning, if there's something that happened this last week or something that's going on in your life that really didn't make sense when you came into here and seemed very burdensome, but as you begin to just sing and hear God's Word, you begin to think, this, this makes sense, God. I understand that you are great and that you are wise. You see, when we come together with God's people, when we commune with Him, whether it's by ourselves or with God's people, things will begin. may take a while sometimes, but they can begin to make sense. There is power in communing with God. So what happens? Prayer reveals the truth about the world, our circumstances, and God's faithfulness. Look at what this psalmist realizes. You know, it looked like the wicked will just be happy forever. But look at verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. By terrors, excuse me, and tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But he realizes who God is and what God does. That these wicked who look like they'll go on forever in this happy state, there will be a time when, when, they, when God judges the earth, or even during their lifetime, will things will come to an end very quickly. And the downfall will come. I don't want to criticize anyone in particular, but I believe that there are circumstances in life when we can see these things happen very clearly. When we see the wisdom of God playing out within our own lives and our own circumstances, situations, in the news. And even this week, I was reading on John Edwards, the former presidential nominee in 2008. His uh, some of his hearings began this week, and it's very interesting that as I read, John Edwards was a man who was at the top, very charismatic, was appealing in so many ways. But if you read about John Edwards, everything came tumbling down very, very quickly. This is just one instance. And this may not always happen before our eyes. Where we can see it as clearly as we have with a guy like John Edwards. But it is assured to us. Listen believer. Listen even you who are, you who are living in wickedness. It will happen. It will come tumbling down all around you and on top of you. God's judgment will come. It will come. So. Prayer. Prayer. Communing with God reveals the truth about the world, our circumstances, and God's faithfulness. As he dwelled with God, as he communed with God, it brought light. He couldn't see. It was darkness. It was frustrating. It was overwhelming. And all of a sudden, as he comes into the presence of God and dwells on God with his people, it sheds light. It reveals the truth. The wicked will not stand forever. It will not be well with them forever. It will not. So prayer reveals truth. But then also prayer increases our adoration of God. Verses 21 through 25. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant and ignorant towards you. I've done that three times. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Look at what he realizes He thought God was far away, that God couldn't even see what was going on. But what he realizes in the presence of God is that he is continually with God. You hold my right hand. You see, this is so easy to miss. That God is consistently with us, that he never leaves us, that he's constantly sustaining us and holding us. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And then whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you realize there is nothing else that you really have except God? There is nothing else that no one can take away from you that you'll never lose except God. That's all. That's all. And this is transformative for the believer as you come into the presence of God, as you commune with him, as you pray to him. This is what you see. This is what you begin to praise about him, that you will never lose him, that he will always have you and he will never let go of you. He is mighty and he is good. He's always Faithful. Prayer also sustains our trust in Him. So as we begin to believe this, as we commune with God, it's going to be prayer that sustains this trust in God. Can we remain this excited about God as we do in Sunday worship? Can we remain this happy about who God is? This devoted to Him? It is prayer. It is communing with Him that will sustain this. Listen to twenty uh, six, verse 26. The psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever come in contact with that reality in your own life that this probably will happen at some point? Your flesh, your brute strength, young men, your beauty, young women, your flesh, it will fail. How good you feel about yourself, it it probably will. Your flesh, and then your heart, that courage that you sense a lot of times? That faith in yourself and your abilities? It's going to come down. You'll have your moment. When you feel the weakness set in. And you've got nothing. What's going to sustain you then? What's going to keep you? What's the keeping power in your, in your life? Is it you? Because I guarantee you, that's going to fail. It doesn't have anything to do with who you are. It's just humanity. It's you. It's me. It will fail. My flesh and my heart may fail. But listen, there's a good part. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, it's communing with God that gives us this revelation, this insight. That God is the strength of our heart. That while we will fail, and if we think that by our own strength we'll be devoted to God all our lives, you're going to fail. You're not going to be devoted to Him. It's God who will sustain your heart. It's God who will sustain your devotion to Him. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In, in college, I studied communication studies at LSU. I got to spend a lot of time with the athletes in that division of studying communications. There were a lot in my classes. Uh, it's, if you don't have anything else to major in, you don't want to do general studies. That's what you move towards. No criticism toward communication studies majors. I am one. Um, but one of the interesting things I was able to take was a family stud, uh, and relational communication studies class. And in that class, we studied about uh, marriage a lot. And and there's a lot of research in marriage these days, of course, but there's a particular researcher who has come up with what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage. Four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage. And what he has determined, this guy, if you look up his research, he has been able to predict after three minutes of being with a couple up to at least 90% whether this couple will make it or not. Up to 90% after three minutes, whether this couple will make it or not. And a, a large part of, whether, of him being able to predict this is these four horsemen of the apocalypse and whether they are present and active within this relationship. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse for marriage are criticism, contempt, contempt, defensiveness, and then the last one, and what I believe to be the most important and significant, the last one is stonewalling. Stonewalling. So criticism is just, instead of kind of complaining and saying, when you do this, it makes me feel like this, that kind of thing, or when you did this, it frustrated me. Instead of doing that, you begin to say, you're such a jerk. <laughs> Things like that. Criticism. And then contempt is when you just step it up a notch and you begin to criticize, criticize certain aspects of their character. You're, you are always like this. You're so lazy. You're not worth anything. It's contempt. And then, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not trying to do a, a marriage seminar, but these, this is helpful. This is going somewhere. The, the third one is defensiveness defensiveness when you just begin to uh, that, so one person begins to maybe complain or highlight some things they're frustrated with and so you begin to say well I didn't I did that because of this or you, you won't listen you begin to defend yourself that's that's the third one and then the last one stonewalling and this is this is peak and stonewalling is begin to there's no longer any communication whatsoever Every time they complain, you just, you just don't listen. Blow it off. Walk away. Or that both are stonewalling and they don't even say what they're frustrated about anymore. And what this, this stonewalling, what they say once these four are present in the marriage relationship, and this is secular... Um, Secular research, of course, as Christians, we believe there's always hope through the gospel. But I do want to say they believe they say when these four are present, when when a marriage has begun to to practice this, all four of these, particularly stonewalling, there's practically no hope for the relationship. No hope. The marriage, the marriage is practically over. Over. Here's one I want to highlight and to be an illustration for us. If you don't commune with God through prayer, your relationship with God is practically dead. You see, this stonewalling aspect, when, when we don't communicate anymore, when we don't listen to each other, when we don't speak, hear each other's concerns, complaints, the, the relationship's practically over. Unless someone does something, it, it, it's, it's on life support. It's not going to make it much longer. And here's the issue with your relationship with God. If you don't pray, if you don't commune with him, it's dead. It's not working. And so I just this is what sustains our trust, our hope in God. Are some of you feeling that your relationship with God is there's just really not much life in it. There's not much vibrancy. maybe you and your spiritual life. there's just not much there. I wonder if you pray? I wonder if you commune with God in the secret place. Is there much personal intimacy there? Just getting with Him. I'm not talking about do you come to church? I'm not talking about do you sometimes you know, on the way to work throw out a few prayers, requests to Him, but do you commune with Him? Is there transformation because you're an intimate with Him? So prayer communion it sustains our trust in him it keeps us from just dying growing weary in our spiritual life my flesh and my heart it might fail it probably will but God is the strength of my heart he is my portion forever when I'm down and out when I have got nothing left it's on my knees that somehow miraculously on my knees I find strength how does that happen It's because God is the strength of your heart, your portion forever. Lastly, in Psalm 73, in this passage, prayer prepares us to proclaim him. Prayer prepares us to proclaim him. I didn't mean to put that many Ps in there. Verse 28, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see what happens in prayer. is we come to know who God is. The greatness of who God is. The goodness of who God is. And it prepares our heart to be able. To tell of who he is. It's in intimacy with him. That you begin to know him. And be able to proclaim him to others we come to know to be reminded of his nature we're confident in who he is so we can go to others and say God is good he will be near to you in your trouble when you go to the friend whose child has just died the the depths of human just hurt what will you say and maybe you don't say anything but what can you know in your heart do you have any hope for people You see, prayer allows us to have hope because we're confident in who God is. We know how kindly He's dealt with us and so we can share that with others. This is what prayer does for us. This is what communing with God does for us. So how does prayer affect us? It utterly transforms us. But, does prayer change God? Does prayer change God? put it simply first, that God answers the prayers of His people. God answers the prayers of His people. But we, in order to explore this phenomenon of prayer, this act of prayer more fully, we do need to say a couple more things. First, God answers the prayers of His people, our prayers, in accordance with His purposes. God answers our prayers in accordance with His purposes purposes. These verses that I'm going to reference in this section are in your notes, so please follow along with me there. Uh, I don't want you to have to turn quickly. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, toward God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. This is the confidence we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. God is Hearing our prayers and hearing them when we ask in accordance with His will. John 16.23 Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the name of the Father, in my name, that being Jesus' name, He will give it to you. Anything, right? Anything you ask in Jesus' name, He will give it to you. What does this mean? As we said last week and as we've said in multiple sermons in this period, the name meant everything. The name described who the person was. And so it's not merely referencing some words that are put together or some letters that are put together in a certain order, but it's asking something in the name, in the character, in who Jesus is. You see, when you ask anything in the name of Jesus, in the Spirit of Jesus, of who Jesus is, the Son of the Father, our Savior, when you ask it in that way, According to the will of the Father, it says He will give it to you. So are you becoming frustrated because you ask many things in the name of Jesus, but they never seem to work? It never seems to, you know, work. Well, are you asking it in the spirit of Jesus, according to the will of Jesus, walking with Jesus as you ask it? It's kind of like Psalm 37.4 tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know, this verse is sometimes v- twisted and applied in bad ways. What does it mean? Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, if you think about it, if you delight yourself in the Lord, whose desires do you have in your heart? God's desires are in your heart. So, as we pray in accordance with the will of the Father, He answers because He answers our prayers in accordance with His purposes. I want to read a quote to you, and I believe we have it for the screen here, and I think this is helpful in uh, understanding this a little bit better. Is that up there? There we go. This is by J.I. Packer. I would definitely recommend him to you as an author. He tells us, it is God's way regularly to withhold His blessings until His people start to pray. But if you and I are too proud or lazy to ask, we need not expect to receive. This is the universal rule in evangelism as elsewhere. God will make us pray before He blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on God for everything. And then, when God permits us to see conversions, we shall not be tempted to ascribe them to our own gifts or skill or wisdom or persuasiveness, but to his work alone. And so we shall know whom we ought to thank for them. It is God's will, it is God's desire that our church would be fruitful that our church would spread the gospel, that our church would see conversions, that our church would see people who come to know God. And so, I believe with all my heart, and I hope you do too, that if we give ourselves to the prayer that God would bless the ministry of Crosspoint, that God would lead Crosspoint and how Crosspoint is to minister, then God will answer that prayer. Because that is God's desire. God's desire is to bless his people and to see more people come to know him so he will answer our prayers in accordance with his purposes. Next point here God does not answer some prayers in the way we desire. God does not answer some prayers in the way we desire. And let me say this right here. What I'm not talking about here is when God and when he gives us over to our sin. I'm not talking about when we ask for things that are sinful and then God just gives us over to it and lets us walk in that sin. What I'm talking about specifically is when God's people pray. It's kind of like the Jesus prayer in the garden. And He says, God, please, if there's any other way, take this away, take this cup away. But what He prays is, not my will, but yours. This is the kind of prayer I'm talking about. That sometimes those types of prayers, God won't answer in the way we desire 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9 is another instance of this. Paul has asked God to remove from him this burden that he has, what he's going to call a thorn in the flesh. This is the context. Therefore, so I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me, so that I would not become Arrogant. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Notice what happens here. Paul asks God to remove from him this thorn in his flesh. And God says, no, I'm not going to remove it. And so what Paul does, it's actually an instance just like Psalm 73, where God's person, his son, his child, prays. God says no, doesn't answer it in the way he desires. But like Psalm 73, Paul is transformed through this prayer. Look what he learns to do. He learns to glory in Christ much more. He learns to glory in his weakness. Do any of you know how to do that? Do any of you do that often? Do you thank God for your weaknesses? Isn't it wonderful that God can receive glory through our weaknesses? What we can't do? James 4.3, another instance of where God doesn't answer in the way and desire. It's a different type of situation. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, in every prayer, we should be searching our heart and wondering, asking, am I seeking this with pure motives? Do I truly desire what God desires? So God does not answer some prayers in the way we desire. Packer also said, notice that we didn't say God doesn't answer our prayers here. We just said He doesn't do it in the way we desire. One other quote here. We're getting close. It must be then wrong to think that a flat no is ever the whole of God's response to reverent petitions from Christians who seek His glory and others' welfare. The truth must be this, God always acts positively when a believer lays a situation of need before Him, but He does not always act in the way or at the speed asked for. In meeting the need, He does what He knows to be best and when He knows it is best to do it. You see, God hears the prayers of His people and He responds to the prayers of His people. But He responds in His wisdom. And that is not always our wisdom. But the question is still before us. God answers our prayers. He answers them in accordance with His purposes. But does prayer change God? Let's look at Exodus chapter 32 for just a moment for a case study. Exodus chapter 32. We'll be in verses 7 through 14. Many of you are familiar with this passage. The people uh, of Israel have come out of Egypt. They have been delivered from slavery by God. They've received the Ten Commandments, the first of which was to make no form of God, not to make a graven image. But in Exodus 32, Moses has been away for a while. He's receiving the golden plates, the Ten Commandments. And during that time, the people became concerned. Moses was no longer there. And so they asked Aaron, Aaron, will you make us an image of God? And so he makes them a golden calf. And so as we look in verse 7... God is telling Moses what has happened. Moses is still up on the mountain with God while the people are down below. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The israelites are taking god away from his position of god, as god and making other gods for themselves and the lord said to moses i've seen this people and behold it is a stiff-necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and i may consume them in order that i may make a great nation of you you see what god is desiring to do destroy all the people and then Moses implored the Lord as God, verse 11, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, and to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. Some of your translations in this section will say, and the Lord repented from the disaster that He intended to bring upon the people. Do you see the importance of the question that we're asking? Does God repent? Does God not have the future planned out? Does God change His mind? See the importance of this? I hope later you see the implications of the possibility of this belief, this theology. For there are those who buy into it. That God doesn't know the future. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't have it planned out, and so therefore we can sway God, we can inform God of what He should do. I would warn you against that theology. First of all, the thing that we need to see and know is that when we use human language to talk about God, this is referred to as anthropomorphic language, that's the the fancy word for it. Anthropomorphic language, human language used to talk about God. That's when we say, God used His strong right hand to pull me up. God, He hides me under His wings. And we get the picture, God has wings, right? Big wings. When we use human language to talk about God, that's always going to need some fleshing out. That's always going to need some explanation. That's always going to have some, some layers to it that we need to, to peel up and we need to look deeper into. What exactly is the writer trying to convey here? Did God really repent? Change his mind? When we use human language to talk about God, there's always going to be, need to be some peeling back. Here's what we know. Here's what we know here, is that God's purpose and His promise had been to build a holy nation out of the family of Abraham. What did Moses call upon when he called upon God? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the star of heaven. It's the stars of heaven. This is what we know, that God's purpose all along had been to build a nation out of Abraham. And that the, most, the promise that Moses claims in, in asking God is the same purpose that God had planned. We also see some tensions in this chapter. Not only this chapter, but in the chapters coming. Exodus thirty three nineteen, 19, for instance. Moses has asked to see God, to see His glory. And here's what God says He's going to reveal to Moses about who He is. Verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What does this verse mean? Well, Paul uses this same passage in Romans 9 to speak of God's absolute sovereignty over all things, God's wisdom in choosing all things and in planning all things. You see, there's tension here. God has relented from a disaster that he planned, but then also God is the one who chooses all things. I hope you see that this tension is present throughout the scriptures. Listen to this verse about sanctification, about our growth in God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you notice the tension? Do you see it there? You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work. You put, through, put forth effort. But then, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see the tensions of the Scriptures? That you are commanded to do something, but it's God who's working in you to do it. We, we shouldn't be surprised that God would use the prayers of His people to accomplish His purposes. You see, God is the all-powerful Creator, yet He uses food. We use food, we feed ourselves to sustain our living bodies, right? But if we were to speak more theologically, with more depth, we would say, who really sustains us? God. Does God have to use food to sustain us? No, but thankfully, God, thank you that you do use food to sustain us. We enjoy it, right? Here's what we see in the Scriptures is a a tension that God's people pray, but God answers in accordance with His purposes. His purpose has always been to prosper Israel, to make much of Israel. And here in this passage, He uses Moses. Moses prays boldly, and God answers the prayer of Moses. He will continue His purpose to work in Israel, to work with Israel. You see, God is not like Dr. Frankenstein who creates but has no purpose or power over his creation. In the book of Frankenstein, the creature at one point refers to himself talking to Dr. Frankenstein as the Adam of your labors. But please know, the God we worship is nothing like Dr. Frankenstein. He created you and has all power, sustaining power over you. You didn't just break loose and now God's trying to figure out what He's going to do. He has all power. You see, prayer changes things, but prayer does not change God. We should expect to see answers to our prayers as we pray in accordance with the will of God. But prayer does not change God. God has ordained prayer as the means that He would transform His people and fulfill His purposes. I hope you see this. God has commanded you to pray. And don't think it's some type of robot thing. If He's got it figured out, what do I have to do? He's commanded you to do it. So when it comes down to it, if you just want to argue, He's commanded you to do it. So if you don't, you're responsible. You're responsible. Here are just a couple more application things. What do we learn from this interaction between Mer- Moses and God? First, we should claim God's promises in prayer. I would direct you in particular the promises God has given in Christ. That you're free from sin. That you don't any longer have to walk in it. So does it have power over you? You should claim Christ, the freedom you receive. That God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. Are you going through something difficult? Then I would urge you to pray, God, work this out for good. Claim that. And then Philippians 4, that God in Christ will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. Are you you anxious about something? Is something overwhelming you? Claim the promise. God gives peace to His people. And then lastly, last application, we're finished. Be sensitive to God's Spirit in order that you might know when to be very bold in prayer. Moses doesn't pray, God, if it's your will, will you keep your people? Please don't destroy these, God. I'd really like if you'd keep them. God, if it's your will... Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. There will be times, if you are sensitive to God's Spirit, that He would urge you to pray with great boldness. Not, God, if it's your will, but, God, please do this. Do this. I hope there are times like that for you if you're walking with God's Spirit, if you're communing with Him, then there should be times when you pray very boldly. Very boldly. So, believer, are you being transformed through through communion with God? I hope you are, and I hope if you're not, that you will set aside time that you'll get up 30 minutes earlier so that you can be alone with the Father. That you'll go to bed 30 minutes earlier. Whatever it takes. That you'll cut out something so that you can be alone with the Father. The good of our church. It's for the good of our church, not just for you. So please, we urge you to do it. Unbeliever. Though that person rebelling against God. Do you know that your days will come to an end? The days of enjoying whatever profit you have in your your wickedness. Whatever enjoyment you have for what you're doing. Those days will come to an end. And you will have nothing. Because you see the only thing that can't be taken away from us is God. When we know Him, when we have His Son Jesus, the only thing that can't be taken away from us is Him. His Spirit that dwells in us. He sent his son so that you might no longer walk in sin, so that your sins would not hang over you anymore, but so that your sins would be forgiven and you would have life with him eternal. So, we're going to pray. I ask you to stand. We'll sing. If you'd like to talk about salvation, please come forward. If you want to just pray, you're welcome to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a great and mighty God who does not change. We thank You that through prayer, You would change us, transform us. Lord, please, we pray that Your Spirit would work in us. Lord, that You would bless this church and that we would devote ourselves to You. It's in the name of Your Son, Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.